Duke fans, hello and welcome to episode number 174 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. Uh, we are coming to you uh, late on a Sunday evening, uh, November 24th. We're just a few days away from Thanksgiving, my favorite holiday. This is your boy, Donald. We're uh, hosting this week uh, from D.C. I am back from the Cayman Islands. And thank you to my counterparts here. I will bring them in just a second. Thank you to you guys for uh, keeping up the uh the podcast and my stand. Um, I, I I know it was kind of difficult with some of the, uh, uh, what is that? The, the, I just blanked all of the things that I had to go through to get this thing done. The, the internet died <laughs> at our hotel. And so I couldn't even record a nice little thing for you. Uh, but thank you guys for, for bearing with me. I bring in Sam from Durham, Sam, how are you doing this weekend? Man, I am good. I, had a had a pretty fun weekend. Didn't get to watch all of either of the games, but I think I got enough that I'll be able to talk about it. So excited to break that down with you tonight. Yeah, and, and we have a lot to talk about with those things. Also, we have in Atlanta, Georgia, Jason Evans. Jason, what's up? Not a lot. Getting ready for Thanksgiving. You know, for the first time in a long time, rather than doing Thanksgiving at my in-laws' house, my in-laws are coming to my house. And it's a little chaotic around here. So <laughs> I believe it. I usually have to fly to my parents' house, and that's where a lot of my cousins come in to uh, visit. So it's always a chaotic time around those parts. But luckily, I just have to do whatever my mom tells me she needs me to do because that's that's really who needs to be happy around there. Jason, more importantly, how's Amen. your internet? Jason, how's the internet? Oh, my internet is back. My internet is back. It's, oh, it's hey, very exciting. There we go. I'm very pleased. <laughs> the three week saga ends. It was uh we were hoping we, we were hoping that it wasn't gonna get renewed for season two, but it was it was a pretty nice end to the series. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's good to have internet back. It, it it and also hand in hand with the internet was my TV. So it's made it considerably easier to actually watch the Duke basketball games. Well, I know that's a crazy concept, but hey, it's wow. a crazy concept in 2019 that we have to resort to the Internet to watch uh, all our games. I had to do the same thing. But while we're talking about TV, we will talk about some basketball, guys. Um, this week, the Duke Blue Devils went up to New York City uh, in the fabled Madison Square Garden to play in the 2K Classic. Uh, the first game they had against Cal was one of those games that they kind of ran away early and never looked back. 87-52, Duke over the Cal Bears. Uh, I will start with you, Sam. Tell me what you saw from that game that uh, gave you uh, some some hope and, and really gave you some, uh, some good thoughts about the uh, season so far. So the most important thing coming out is that our general prediction, at least for the Cal game, was pretty accurate that Duke shouldn't have much of a problem taking care of them. It was a, almost a 20-point game at halftime and never really looked competitive. The star of the show in both the Cal game and the Georgetown game, which I think will be more interesting generally for us to talk about, was Vernon Carey. Uh, 11 for 18 on the night, made his third three-pointer of the year. So my, my prediction three, for Vernon... Yeah. Three for three on three he's pointers for the year. <laughs> he's three for three. My prediction for Vernon Carey threes is going down the drain pretty quick. I'm, so I'm pretty it, sure I'm going to win that one. Yeah. By, I, by default. I think you are. But let's not forget, though, more. I think more important than that, eight for nine from the free throw line for Vernon Carey on this night. He was a total beast. He was getting to the line a ton. He was making his free throws. He was pretty much doing everything for Duke. And I think at the beginning of the season, 
we were saying that Vernon Carey is probably going to be an effective, important member of the team here this year. This tournament, the, the Cal game and the Georgetown game, was the first time I think we saw how good Vernon Carey can really be this season. And we hopefully will see more of of big double-double 25-plus point Vernon Carey the rest of the season. I think that would be a huge development for Duke. So that's my my big takeaway from, at least from the Cal game. So Jason, I'll, what I'll do you think? About Vernon, so one of the great things about Vernon Carey was at halftime, Duke was leading 40 to 21. Vernon Carey was tied with Cal. He had 21 yeah. first pa- half points and so did, so did Cal. That's, that's a pretty good half for you when you score as much as the entire opposition. Um, a friend of mine um, emailed to me and he pointed out there with about two, if you want to go back and watch um, a highlight from this game with about two minutes left in the first half, there's a great moment where Vernon Carey is in the post and Cassius Stanley is passing him the ball. And Cassius passes it in, and Vernon doesn't have a good angle, and he immediately passes it back out. And Cassius just waits a heartbeat for Vernon to get where he needs to be, and Cassius passes it back in again. And by the way, while they're doing this, the poor guy who's covering Cassius Stanley is like jockeying back and forth, trying to, he's trying to figure out, am I doubling the post or am I covering the guy who's going to shoot the three-pointer? What am I going to do? Um, and he just basically gets lost. But but uh, Vernon Carey sort of progressively gets better and better position on his defender. And so when Cassius puts it back in, Vernon's able to hit a very easy little half-hook shot, which he is money, money, money with. Um, it really shows some great chemistry between those two guys, some you know advanced understanding for freshmen of positioning and how to put pressure on the defense. There are a few moments like that that I just adored in this game that were really – they really just showed – it doesn't feel like our freshmen are freshmen. They're they're playing with, you know, especially like on defense. They they just they play with more understanding of the game than you usually get from a high school freshman, um, uh, fresh out of high school, uh, a guy and a guy. Um, I, there were obviously two ridiculous highlights in this game in the second half. Um, if you if if you stop watching at halftime because Duke was winning by twenty, you missed Cassius Stanley grabbing a rebound where I think head almost hit the rim. I mean, it was like in. The announcers just went, oh, my. There was nothing other to say than, oh, my, when Cassius grabbed this rebound. And then a few seconds later, um, when uh, poor, poor Alex O'Connell is in a terrible funk. He's in a shooting slump. He can't hit anything. But they hit him on the wing. He went in the lane and just absolutely posterized with the dunk. It was his only basket in the entire game. But it was the absolute highlight of the game. Guys, I got a question. I don't understand something. When Alex just did that absurd, crazy dunk. Everyone on the team and guys in the stands, RJ Barrett, Harry Giles, and Marvin Bagley were all there sitting together. They all start patting their heads. What, what, what is that? Does anyone, does anyone know what the patting the head thing is? Donald, Donald, you probably They explained what it was. I think it's about, um, uh, it's when they pat their heads, it's about that they, their head, the head is hitting the rim, that their head is above. Okay. Okay. So that means and like if, you, if they start all doing this, it means that their head got above the rim. It's the it, it's notionally the Cassius Stanley symbol, but mm-hmm. Alex O'Connell's got, got the Alex O'Connell's got the hops to to get there as well. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. So, uh, but the one other thing I wanted to talk about in this game that I thought was significant, um, I, I've been talking a lot on the boards uh, about the starting lineup and how it's been changing throughout the season, and. In this game, we got yet another new starting lineup, and it was that Wendell Moore got moved into the starting lineup. And based on the first few games of the season, that might have seemed surprising. I mean, there were moments in those first few games 
where it looked like Wendell Moore was like maybe the ninth guy on this team. He wasn't getting said, a lot of time. I yeah. said on the last show that that wither Wendell Moore's playing time, perhaps, and and all of a sudden it's totally turned around this week, right? Yeah, well, so I was going to say he gets the start in this game and he absolutely earned it. You could see why Coach K wanted him in there so much. Um, uh, it, it wasn't like a huge game in the counting stats, but but he, he got stuff all across the board. I mean, like he had 10 points, five assists, seven rebounds. That's a guy who's impacting the game in a lot of different ways. Um, and I just felt he seemed really active. He seemed very involved in everything that was going on. Um, by the way, those stats, he was third on the team in scoring, second in rebounding, and second in assists. <clears throat> I mean, that should show you how involved he was. Um, and it was sort of a harbinger of what was to come. Um, I think, you know, the game against Georgetown, uh, he may have been, he was darn close to our MVP in that game, but I don't want to get ahead of myself. Donald, give me what you got on on uh, the Cal game. So real quickly, you, I want to go back to that play that you mentioned with uh, uh, Vernon Carey and Cassius Stanley kind of passed the ball back to each other. Did you guys see the Sports Channel 8 uh, Twitter account? The they mentioned yeah, they it. mentioned that that was like kind of they're like, oh, this play is so familiar. And it was they basically showed the play that Vernon Carey and Catch Stanley were doing. And then they flashed to a moment from the movie Semi Pro where the Flint Tropics are doing the same thing with Will Farrell's kind of like oh, yeah, passing yeah. back for passport. <laughs> and I don't know if you guys saw this, but the Duke men's basketball Twitter responded and said, normally we like to keep our play origins a secret, but a local news outlet actually outed us about this so it was kind of funny <laughs> that exchange so uh but yeah i i made note of that play the one thing uh, i want to talk about that you guys have it jason last year there's one big stat that you always like to go to what was that stat do you remember that stat i mean are you talking every game i always talk about field goal attempts field goal attempts and how many did they have they had 52 attempts okay we had and we had six, 65 we had 65 I'm not going to talk necessarily about that stat, but there's a reason why that stat is so lopsided. It's because of our rebounds. I, offensive rebounds. Yep. Offensive rebounds and I was rebounds in total. Up, like, go, go, do it. Yeah. Rebounds yeah. in total. 50 rebounds to 28. If we're going to be a team that's going to be averaging over 40 rebounds a game, then we're going to win a lot of basketball games because that means we're getting the basketball and running. That also means on offense, we're getting second and third and even fourth chances to score. That is going to be an incredibly important stat moving forward. And I like that what I'm seeing so far with the fact that we have 50 rebounds in a game against a pretty decent team in Cal. It's not like Cal is just a, a slough team. This is a team that is a power five conference team in a major you know, holiday tournament. We're getting 50 rebounds against them. That is a really good stat. And I really think that fuels not just the offense. You talked about the offensive rebounds, but on defense, our defense was just killer at certain times of this match or of this game we had times where they like Cal just kind of was throwing stuff up at the rim hoping it would go in because that was the only shot they could get and I think that is a credit to the defensive strategy that our coaches have but also the execution that we that our guys have and just how like active they are in defense this is a team that early on the season uh, we we talked about them kind of growing into their role the role that they're growing into is their defense and I think the defense is fueling everything that is what I'm enjoying to see uh, from this team. And that's honestly why I think we ran away with uh, this game against Cal. So I, I was going to, I have a whole thing about rebounding. 
that I wanted to talk about, but I was going to wait till after the Georgetown game. And I don't know if, you know, we could get it in now if, if, if you guys want. Uh, Go ahead. In, in the Spin game it. against Cal. Yeah, in the game against Cal, um, we had 23 offensive rebounds on 38 missed shots. Get your calculator out. That's better than 60% offensive rebounds. What that means is when we shot and missed, we were more likely, we were way more likely to get the ball than Cal was. Um, and this Duke team has turned into a ridiculously good offensive rebounding team. Folks, if you go back, it's just two seasons, but remember uh, uh, Wendell Carter, Marvin Bagley, that team was also a great offensive rebounding team. Um, we are currently on this season rebounding 41.7% of our missed shots. That's fourth best in the country. And, and admittedly, you know, it's early in the season, so those kind of stats can be skewed by the quality of your opponent and the such. Duke's played, you know, a few pretty good teams so far um, in Kansas and Cal and Georgetown. So uh, I, I actually think we may even move up in that category. If we're fourth best so far, I think we maybe have even upside there. And by comparison, just so folks understand, again, we're rebounding 41.7% of our missed shots on defense. We only give up an offensive rebound 21% of the time, which makes us the 22nd best defensive rebounding team in the country. So we are the fourth best offensive rebounding team, 22nd best defensive rebounding team in the land. And that, that is absolutely, you, you talked about the defense and the defense is important. Look, Ken Palm says we're the second best defensive team in the country, but one of the reasons we're so good on defense is we never give up offensive, you know, offensive rebounds. And, and the way we're succeeding on offense is grabbing offensive rebounds. It's it's the identity of this team as much as anything is. And I think a lot of that is Vernon Carey. There's also something to be said for Duke taking good shots. So it's not that necessarily the Duke is hitting a great percentage of their shots, but they're taking good shots in the rhythm of the offense and not clanging all kinds of, you know, clanging the ball like off the rim and having it go out of bounds. There is there is something about the the design of the offensive plays that allows the team to be in better position for the rebounding. I think it also helps that we have veterans who are really focused on that. Guys like Jack White and Javon Delorier are going to be more talented at at offensive rebounding or at least at getting into space than I think you're going to see from the standard bench player. Uh, and then obviously we're not including there Vernon Carey and Alex O'Connell guys who are who are getting a lot of minutes who are also able to to pull down those offensive rebounds. So it's coming from a lot of different guys on the team. And I agree. It's a, it's a big part of Duke's success so far is that they don't have to be super efficient shooting the basketball as long as they all know where each other are and can get those rebounds and put them back in. Guys, we're going to move on to the second game in the 2K Classic, uh, and that was the final against Georgetown, uh, a, a team that we faced in the 2K Classic back in 2015. Uh, that game was a close one. This one was a close one. But in the end, Duke emerges as the 2K Classic champions by an 81-73 to 73 score. This one was more of a struggle of a game. This was one of those games that, you know, it was back and forth uh, until we started to pull away. Uh, later in the game. Sam, I will go to you. Uh, what did you see from this game uh, in comparison to the Cal game or, or just talk about this game and how it flowed out? Well, first, let's uh, pour one out for Patrick Ewing's tie that he <laughs> very angrily removed at, at one point in the game when Georgetown was called for, let's admit it, a pretty phantom foul. 
Patrick yeah. Ewing, the coach the re- of George hey, the Brown. The refs were bad, but the refs were bad both the, way. The, 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 rest, the, rest, the refs were bad were in every direction. Terrible in this game. That, yeah, the, there was a the lot call of calls that, that were just the the call that Patrick was upset about. He had every right to be upset about because I didn't see where any of the contact was. However, he reacted poorly because he removed <laughs> his tie, which is not easy to do. Sort of in the heat of the moment, like ripping a. I can see if you can rip a, you can rip a bow tie off pretty easily because you just pull it with one hand but a but a properly done necktie you got to sort of unwind it um, so sam i anyway. think i know the secret it was a clip on it was a clip he had a patrick ewing was a clip on i don't know no, no, was no, it really no, it was not no, a clip no, on. no 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 no, 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 no i'm just joking he did have, <laughs> he did have an, he did have enormous collars anyway we're not going to do the aesthetics let's let's talk about the actual quality of the game and you know what i'll bring it i'll bring it right back to the guy i talked about for the first game, Vernon Carey, who of course was the MVP of the whole tournament. He was a beast again tonight. And I bet Patrick Ewing was watching that thinking, damn it. I I know exactly what it feels like to be him and how awesome it is just being able to dominate in the paint and being able to get around guys and really, really forcing offense through himself was, was Vernon Carey in this game. That was what kept Duke in it. And then the other the sort of most important play that I wanted to highlight was the opening seconds of the second half when Trey Jones was apparently just kind of standing there waiting for the inbounds pass to Georgetown, stole the ball very uh, adeptly and raced down the court for an easy bucket. That, even though, even though the rest of the game was not, you know, it wasn't like the whole thing was, was out of reach for Georgetown, but you could sort of feel that Duke was, one or two steps ahead of the Hoyas pretty much the whole way. And I think that was sparked by Trey Jones just deciding at the beginning of the half that he wasn't even going to let Georgetown get into their flow in a in, in a moment of calm like that. So I, I loved that play, and I think that it was the catalyst for the rest of the game. I, I was going to say, I don't know that I'd say that we were ahead all of all the way. We we got down a lot early, mm-hmm. and um, I, I think the story of this game uh, – was Coach K, <laughs> remember how I kept on talking about how Coach K was going to play a long bench this year and all these, you know, we're going to have nine or 10 guys get double-digit minutes all the time? Um, well, in this game, not so much. Coach K found the five guys that he liked. And other than those guys getting in foul trouble, they were going to be out there pretty much the entire second half. And and I thought Trey Jones looked kind of gassed at times late in this game, but Coach K was like, uh-uh, no way, you're not coming out um alex o'connell played four minutes matthew hurt played five minutes i mean they saw their minutes drive in a big 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 way neither one of them played a single second of the second half matthew hurt um I, we got to talk about this for a second steve wiseman who covers the blue devils he's, he's on the duke beat was at the game and he said after the game um matthew hurt was uh, was down emotionally that he was upset um, in the locker room and that Jack White was talking to him and trying to buck him up and, you know, doing, as Steve Wiseman said, doing the captain thing. Um, and Wiseman said, this is now a pivotal time for Matthew Hurt. Um, I, I, I think this is something that we're going to have to watch this week um, going forward uh, to see. Matthew Hurt could be at one of those inflection moments. Um, is he able to to deal with some adverse adversity. I mean, he hasn't had a lot of adversity in his, certainly didn't have it at all in high school when he was dominating. Um, he, he came out of the gate pretty well his first few games. He's mostly been a starter for Duke and getting serious minutes. 
here we go into, you know, what was really Duke's first. Um, I guess the Kansas game was very, very competitive, obviously, but, you know, another really competitive game. And suddenly Matthew Hurt only plays five minutes. Um, Duke, I, I think I saw that Duke was negative 13 with him on the board, on the floor. Uh, obviously, you know, one guy isn't responsible for plus minus. Um, and you never want to look at like one game of plus minus and read too much into it. But negative 13, there's a good reason that Matthew Hurt did not play um, the second half of this game. It's because Coach K was not confident with him out there. And Coach K really wanted Jack White to be out there. Um, now, after the game, Coach K said that there wasn't some special strategy he was employing. It was just that Jack was playing better. He talked specifically about Jack White playing over Matthew Hurt. Um, he said it was just Jack was playing better in this game. But um, I think the onus is somewhat on Matthew Hurt to find a way to, you know, raise his game up and get back to where he was a little while ago um, because he's a very, very important player for Duke moving forward. Um, it's hard to see us having a super successful season without him helping out and contributing. I got a lot more in this game, but but Donald, I'll, I'll let you get in. Yeah, so the one thing I actually wanted to go back to you for this because one thing that I grew up with, one thing that I think became the Duke thing was the floor slap. And the floor slap, we all know what that means. That meant that it was time to knuckle down and get a great defensive stop. We saw that a few times in this game where a stop was needed and all five guys on the floor went to the floor slap. It got everybody in the stadium hype and they went out and got a stop. How does that like confidence, what, what do you see from that? Because sometimes we do that and it doesn't, you know, we, they get a, they get a basket and everyone's like, Oh, that, you know, the floor slap didn't work. But I feel like every single time we needed a, a good defensive stop, these guys would go to the floor slap, this old dude <laughs> thing that they brought it back. It, you know, they're wearing the old unis and they brought it back. And when that happened, they got the stop that they needed. What kind of confidence do you think that will feel down the road? I mean, to me, the floor slap is about focus. And it's mm -hmm. about saying to, you know, all your teammates, you're all together on the same page. Coach K, of course, talks about the five guys forming a fist. Um, and, the, uh, you know, fist is stronger than any one finger. Um, and, and I think the floor slap is about saying we are a fist right now and we will play together on defense. Um, I, look, I don't know the confidence thing to it. To me, I, you know, you slap the floor. If it works, yeah, it probably brings you up a little bit. But I don't know that you're going to. I don't know that they're going to get to the point where they think, hey, every time we slap the floor, we're definitely going to stop them. Um, I think what they're going to get to the point where they're going to say is when we work together on defense, we are one of the, if not the best defensive teams in the country. And that means the opposing team is going to have a really tough time doing anything against us, provided we are communicating um, and provided we are working together. Um, and so that to me, what the floor slap is about. I don't know that, again, I don't, I don't feel like there's going to be any karma um, to it or or a confidence thing to it other than the confidence of knowing they're playing some of the best defense in the country. Like I said, Ken Pomeroy says we are number two second best defensive team in the land. Well, and if we're thinking about the line, you, you were talking about the lineup that Duke was predominantly playing in the second half. That's a lineup full of guys who should be really good on defense, starting with oh, Trey yeah. Jones at the top, mm -hmm. but having Moore and Stanley on the wings and then White and Vernon Carey at the forward positions. I think if we're we're projecting out, that's probably the best defensive lineup that Duke should have by the end of the season. Those guys are the are, are probably the strongest people at each of their positions. Alex O'Connell has has potential, I feel like, on defense, but doesn't really display it. 
and his athleticism is more of an asset on the offensive end. So this is really the the lineup that shows the most on defense. I think, Jason, you talked about Matthew Hurt and sort of the struggle he's going through. Defense is probably part of that. In the beginning of the season, Coach K talked about how he thought Matthew Hurt was ready for the defense. And then when you face big teams like Georgetown, the equation totally changes because all of a sudden you're you're a 6'10 dude who has not had to body up other 6'10 guys prior to this. And now that are they're coming at you. And they're coming at you the night after you've already played a game. So this is one of those situations where hopefully Matthew Hart recognizes that, hey, he has to be able to do that. He doesn't have to do it yet, but but it's coming, and, and more of these games are coming. Duke won't have another back-to-back until the ACC tournament. But, for example, next week, Duke gets Kansas and Virginia Tech. Uh, both of those are going to be games against – you know, or sorry, not Kansas, uh, Michigan State, rather. But – both yeah, of those teams are we're playing Kansas again. What we're not playing Kansas again. No, no, no. We beat them. We're done. Sorry. We're done. They're, I'm, uh, they're, they're I'm, I'm confusing my champions classic participants, but they're going to have to play those two teams only a couple days apart from each other. And do not believe that Michigan state is going to let Duke have anything other than a bruising, regardless of the final score of that game. So being able to be tough enough to turn that around from one game to the next is going to be imper- important for Matthew Hurt and for the rest of the Blue Devils. So there's one other thing I wanted to mention about this game. Um, We haven't talked, I don't think we've talked enough about the performance um, in New York by Wendell Moore. Um, I I mentioned a little bit, you know, from the last game that he had earned a start. Um, I I feel like uh, he may be emerging. um, Look, uh, earlier in the season, we said, hey, who's the second best player in this team? And we all said Cassius Stanley. If I ask that question right now, we're all going to say Vernon Carey. I, I, I feel like in a week or two, I may ask that question and we all may say Wendell Moore. Um, uh, he's really starting to play up to some of the hype he had coming out of high school. Um, he might be, and feel free to say if you think I'm crazy, he might be the best player on the team at isolation one-on-one taking the ball to the hole he isn't a good passer in that situation yet and he's committing too many turnovers but he's finishing fairly well and when we're having trouble getting the ball inside to vernon carey uh, in the second half against georgetown i feel like you know sure trey jones you know trey see if you can find a good passing angle or something like that but getting the ball to wendell moore and having him go iso is not the worst option for us and I, I just sort of start, I'm starting to see something develop with him. Um, uh, I'm starting to, you know, I think we're starting to understand where the hype was on this kid coming out of high school. Uh, everyone said this guy was, you know, almost a fringe lottery pick. A lot of folks were saying that he was going to be one and done and, um, uh, and into the NBA draft and picked in the teens or so. Uh, and, and look for the first, you know, I don't know, three, four games, you would have been like, that's insane. Uh, what doesn't look insane anymore. Um, and I'm, he was, I'm really looking. He was the yeah, fourth best freshman. He was the fourth best freshman on the team for the through the first four games, including yeah. that Kansas game. He was the and, ninth man. I mean, let's let's be clear. And, and and we were talking about him sort of getting lost in that in that long rotation. And in this tournament against, I think a, a Georgetown team that we underrated certainly, uh, given yeah. their performance against Texas, and then honestly their performance against Duke. I don't think anyone expected Georgetown to be that good. Wendell Moore really stepped up. And and was able to um, was able to bring it for for a lot of minutes against a Georgetown team on a you know on the second night of a back to back. 
And look, look, we're going to be uh, we're going to do player of the week later on. And I'm not saying I'm a vote for Wendell Moore because I'm going to vote for Vernon Carey because I'm not crazy because Vernon Spoilers. Carey had an incredible week. <laughs> yes. Well, but I mean, Wendell Moore had a really good week and, uh, you know, sort of like he did in the Cal game against Georgetown. He, he produced in a lot of different categories, 17 points, six rebounds, three assists. You know, so he's third on the team in scoring, second on the uh, third on the team in rebounding, second on the team in assists. Uh, you know, and seven of 10 from the field. Yeah, again, he had too many, he had seven turnovers, too many turnovers. But I, I, I just like what I'm seeing emerging from this kid. Um, I'm not surprised at all that it, against Georgetown, a game that we were down for a lot of, tied at halftime, Wendell Moore played the second most minutes of anyone on the team, 36 minutes played for a kid who we thought was ninth man a couple of days ago. Yeah, and I will end with this. I, I'll take that and kind of wrap it into uh, my thoughts on Ka- uh, Cassius Stanley. Wendell Moore and Cassius Stanley, I think they are able to play a physical brand of basketball, both on offense and defense. And against Georgetown, that was very important because Georgetown was way more physical than I think anybody expected. And I think that really kind of flustered us in the first you know, 10 minutes of the game. But in the first half, Cassius Stanley had one point. It was one made free throw. In the second half, he had 20 points. And I think he his spark that he always goes at a motor that's so high that he's like, even if you, if it messes up, you're like, I know he's going to get the next one. I know he's going to be physical. I know he's going to be in the paint, in your face on defense, on every possession. And I liked that he took, shook off what was a, you know, pretty bad first half for him and came back and had an incredible second half at 20 points. He finished with eight rebounds. Uh, he only had three turnovers. Uh, and I think three of the all, two of those three were in the first half. So I like those type of players um, like Wendell Moore and Cassius Stanley being physical on offense and defense. Those are going to be traits that we're going to need in the ACC. Uh, and as even if, you know, as soon as next week against Michigan State, I, I like that he was able to shake off uh, kind of, you know, what was a bad first half and say, I'm going to go right at the rim. I'm going to keep doing my thing and the shots are going to fall. He was three for three from three point land. And he also was just driving to the lane and got some great and ones. Uh, and also really, you know, there was that one, I think it was uh, O'Connell went up for a layup and he missed it. And uh, right after that, Stanley basically alley-ooped uh, laid it in right behind him. So uh, I really liked what I saw from there. And I think that kind of play is what won this ball game. This episode of the Duke Basketball Report podcast is brought to you by those fine gentlemen at Bird Campbell, PA, a business law firm with offices in Florida and Texas. For all of your business law needs, please contact birdcampbell.com. That's B-Y-R-D-C-A-M-P-B-E-L-L.com. Those Duke guys, Bird Campbell means business. Okay, guys, it is Thanksgiving week, and we actually have two basketball games coming up. Uh, The first one coming up is against Stephen F. Austin, and then we also have a game on Friday night against Winthrop. Jason, you've been looking at Stephen F. Austin. They've been a team that we've seen in the tournament, not necessarily Duke, but basketball fans have seen in the NCAA tournament in the last few years. Give us what you got on Stephen F. Austin. So this, uh, this opponent is 263rd in Ken Pomeroy's rankings. Uh, you don't figure a team 
ranked that low is going to be much competition for Duke. And if you are someone who likes to put an occasional wager on a game, um, I would say to bet the over on this game because Stephen F. Austin likes to play fast. They have the 11th fastest tempo in the land. Duke also likes to play fast, as we've been pointing out all year. This is a very, very deep Duke team. This is a Duke team that presses full court. And I, I see this being an up and down kind of game, really, really fast paced. And I'll be very surprised if Stephen F. Austin is able to stay within, I don't know, 25, 30 points of Duke. I'd be, I'd be surprised if it's that close. Um, uh, they are uh, they're a team. That, they are loaded with lots of juniors and seniors, um, and uh, they, they're a team that's really good at forcing turnovers. In fact, statistically, they are the best team in the country at forcing turnovers. But Duke has, I mean, Duke got Trey Jones. You're just not going to guess to turn the ball over that much. The the one thing I am really looking forward to is they're a really good defensive rebounding team. They're one of the ten best teams in the country at defensive rebounding. Now they haven't played anybody. The only team of any consequence. The only recognizable team they've played is Rutgers, who is annually, you know, one of the worst power five teams in the country. Um, they played Rutgers. They lost by 12. Uh, so uh, some of these stats that Stephen F. Austin has, you know, good at forcing turnovers, good at defensive rebounding, that may be a product of playing lousy opponents. Um, and they have played some really lousy opponents. They're just, uh, but I, I don't really see them having much of a chance of, of, like I say, even staying with Duke, their best player is a, a guard, um, a guard forward, a wing named Kevon Harris. Um, uh, he'll he'll shoot a fair number of three pointers and he can hit them. But uh, other other than that, there's just not a lot these guys do that's going to allow them to compete all that well with Duke. They they don't have a size. Um, they don't really, for the most part, they don't play anybody above six seven. Uh, I, I I could easily see Vernon Carey having a very very big game against them. Um, at, most of the metrics out there are going to say that Duke's, like I said, 25 to 30 points pretty easily, I think, um, uh, victory for the Devils here. Yeah, and that's going to be a Tuesday night uh, contest with the Lumberjacks of Stephen F. Austin, probably one of the more doper uh, mascot names in all of college yeah, basketball. Yeah, great nickname. I didn't yeah, realize, yeah, I didn't realize that they, they were the nickname. Lumberjacks. Yeah, yeah well, their, their, their jerseys always say jacks on them, so they're like, oh, are they the jackrabbits? Wherever? No, they are the lumberjacks. Uh, and uh, But from now, we'll do I that on Tuesday. I did not know jack about that. <laughs> that was a dad joke. Oh, my you're God. Very, that was you're bad. very clever. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, should, I need to uh, edit oops, that, that out was, probably, right? That was, yeah. that no, was, we're leaving that in. No, leaving no, that no. In. You, you have to leave that in the show. Uh, if, if you guys out there thought that was the worst dad joke you've ever heard, please contact us at dbrpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, uh, Tuesday night, Stephen F. Austin at Duke. I believe that's a 9 o'clock East Coast time uh, uh, tip-off. Uh, but, Sam, you have read up on the Winthrop Eagles we will be facing on Friday night, Black Friday. Uh, give us what you got on them. Yes, I have you no said eagle it. pun. No, no eagle it is. <laughs> All right, fly away, Jason. The So, like you said – Donald, it's uh, it's on Black Friday. This game, Duke hopefully will not be hungover from Thanksgiving and and all of the eating to because they are welcoming in a team that, while not overwhelmingly good, Winthrop does have a very impressive road win this year against St. Mary's. And Winthrop, of course, is in I believe they're in South Carolina. St. Mary's is all the way on the West Coast, so Winthrop went all the way out there and beat them. Um, and they've got some size for a team that is sort of ranked kind of in the they're sort of in the middle of of division one uh 
college basketball. They're they're slightly below average on both offense and defense, according to Ken Palm, but but right around average on both sides. They are led by three bigger, not huge players, but bigger players. Uh, a forward in, in Josh Ferguson, who's uh, who's an older guy, DJ Burns, who's a freshman, and then notionally their point guard is uh, junior Chandler Vaudrin, who is six seven, but uh, leads the team in assists. So assuming that's a point guard <laughs> for for all intents and purposes, those three guys are going to be uh, maybe not maybe not whoever goes up against Carey, but the others are going to be bigger than. Or, or around the same size as the Duke players that they are going to be matched up against. So that should be an interesting test for Duke to be playing a team that is certainly not as talented, perhaps, as a, as a Georgetown or as a Kansas, but that brings a lot of size into Cameron. So that'll be that'll be interesting for that, and because because the holidays always do play weird tricks on on these young guys. So you never know how that's going to affect them. The other interesting thing I think about Winthrop is that they do have a deep bench. So we've talked about how Duke is able to employ a long bench this season, particularly against lesser opponents. Wonder how that will play against a team that currently has what I would call 11 guys in their rotation. They were averaging at least like eight or nine minutes a game. So that is, that's another interesting twist for Winthrop and and for Duke in playing them. Certainly, Duke should should be winning going away. It is still a home game, even if it is over a holiday break, and and the Devils just have a lot more talent on the floor. But I would not sleep on Winthrop, especially because Duke will be, you know, sort of inevitably. Although I'm sure Coach K will tell them not to, Duke will be inevitably looking ahead at that road game against Michigan State the following week in the ACC Big Ten Challenge. So this is one of those uh, what do you call letdown games that that could pop up on the schedule but I assume they'll be they'll be locked in as they're supposed to be and and should come out of this week 2-0. Yeah, and really for both of these games, I want to see how physical our guys can be, both on offense and defense. We saw a preview of that really against Georgetown, but I think we all can agree that the, the, the ultimate test of physicality uh, when it comes to our schedule will be that game against Michigan State at the Breslin Center uh, on uh, next week. So, I, I want to see that and kind of see who's going to be those guys that Coach K can lean on when we do go up there uh, to East Lansing. And these are two games that they can kind of figure it out. I think they can be teams we can overmatch them uh, when it comes to our physicality. But I also want to see who who's going to have that juice when it counts. And the, these are going to be two games to see uh, where we can do that on Tuesday against Stephen F. Austin and then Friday night against Winthrop. And the that might be an interesting sort of motivational tactic that coach K uses here. We've got these two home games against teams that Duke should beat. Which of the players is going to come out and play their tail off to earn those minutes against Michigan state. Wouldn't be surprised if, if coach K makes some commentary about that heading into the Michigan state game that, Oh, you know, I'll in, insert any player here. Oh, Cassius Stanley had a really great week. I'm looking forward to, to seeing him get more minutes for Wendell Moore or Matthew Hurt. Maybe he, he bounces back from the little slump that he's in. So it could be any of those guys that has, um, that has a great week against these lesser opponents. And we'll see how that sort of flows into Michigan state. And then right on the heels of Michigan state, I mentioned it earlier, Duke's first ACC game is also the following week. So the schedule gets a lot more serious from there. And at, it's at Virginia tech, uh, and I think that's also a game where last year, uh, at least, it was very physical. And it was one of those things where with the crowd and with their team being uh, kind of physical, you know, our team just kind of 
we're flat footed and I want to make sure that these guys know that next week is a big game or are two big games and the physicality and just the preparation for that starts with these two games here this week. Look, Virginia Tech never left the Big East. Let's let's be totally real here. Yeah. So uh, it, it is always it is always a battle when when Duke plays in Blacksburg, although not in football anymore, just in basketball, right? Just in basketball. Ooh, nice. Yeah. Did you like that? I did. That, I did. I'm, that's me. That's me making. That's me making digs at other ACC programs in football. Um, so you know, chalk one up where where you can get them. Feels like a segue. I, I don't want it to be. I, I'd rather avoid the topic entirely if we can. But uh, <laughs> but if we but if we have to. Yes, yeah, Sam. We have to. Uh, oh. <laughs> so uh, we're going to switch to football now because. Uh, I guess it's written in our, our non-contract that we did. What sign. contract? We what don't have any. But we're going to talk about it anyway. Um, Duke we're went to the show. Forest. In, in all seriousness, they deserve our support. They deserve our support. That is true. No, they do. They do. Uh, you're, talking with, when, you're talking with two guys who used to be on yeah. the football team uh, in various capacities. We we love Duke football, but we we talk about we, we we talk about the good and the bad here on the Duke Basketball Report podcast. And right now, Duke's in a bad time uh, in the football field. Uh, they went to Wake Forest this past weekend, and they lost 39-27. to uh, That drops Duke to 4-7 and seven on the season. It's their fifth straight loss. And it, for all intents and purposes, they are out of the bowl race unless something happens uh, with regards to teams not being able to qualify and they need to fill some of these bowls. Uh, Duke will be on the outside looking in. Uh, Jason, I don't know if you watched this game. I, I definitely watched uh, a lot of it. Um, I don't know why I like to subject myself to this kind of punishment, but I do. Um, <laughs> I, texted, so, I texted you guys that at one point in, during the game, I was like, I was like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm watching this. Yeah. Why am I watching this? Someone... <laughs> so I missed, I think we're I missed so the we... first half. I missed the first half. I went to a concert at the Carolina theater on Saturday night and you know what? It was lovely. But then Sam, after the game, we, we Sam's went out to the bar. To... This podcast. Look, um, we went to the bar afterward. We went to a bar somewhere downtown afterwards to watch the rest of the game, which yeah. which I did do. So, Jason. Yeah. Anyway, continue. Yeah, Jason. I'm going to start with you. What what happened? And really, just where do we go from here with uh, with Duke football? So I'm going to start with the good. I am not going to dwell on the bad. I'm going to okay. start with the good, and the good was named Damon Filial Johnson, um, yes. who returned not one but two two kickoffs for a touchdown. Um, and that's really why the game was as competitive as it was. Without him, um, you know, I don't know. I guess you can suppose that Duke would have taken both of those possessions that he turned into touchdowns and scored touchdowns on their own. I don't know how you could suppose that based on how our offense played throughout the rest of the game, but I don't know. Maybe you could make that supposition. But regardless, uh, Damon Filial Johnson was the man um, the first, by the way, folks, if you haven't seen the two touchdown returns, at least go watch the first one. That was the easiest, not saying, I mean, dude is fast and he's skilled and I want the ball in his hands clearly, but it looked like wake had like maybe six players on the field because no one came within the five to eight yards of touching Philly Johnson. And all he really did was just run straight. He just like ran and there was no one there. He just kept on running. It was pretty funny, but he made up for it on the second touchdown. He had, he made a couple great cut. I like he, he, he put one guy, one guy lost his shoes. I mean, the guy just was completely juked out of everything. So, uh, uh the I good, think it was just, I think it was just wet out there. 
It was just it was just really rainy this weekend. Dude, stop stop making excuses. Damon <laughs> Philly Johnson was the man, at least on kickoff returns. But this was this is the game was largely typical of what we've seen from Duke this year. We had three turnovers. We we got zero turnovers from Wake. Um, we we actually had five fumbles. Thank God we recovered three of them. Wake rushed. Get this. Wake rushed for three hundred and thirty-four yards. Of course we lost. They had 600-plus yards of offense. We had only 290. So they more than doubled us in terms of yards of offense. Of course we lost. So this is five in a row. You know, at least thanks to Philly Johnson, this this game was reasonably competitive. I mean, Duke had the lead at one point in the second half thanks to Philly Johnson. But for like 12 seconds. Uh, yeah, Wake was, Wake was the better team. And this Duke team continues to look like they're not good at stopping the run. They're not good at rushing the ball. They're not good at passing the ball. Um, there's, they're, we're, we're in that's only won four games. We don't look like a team who deserves to win a lot more than four games. I, you know, I, I've got a bunch of friends who've been debating and talking about Duke football. Um, and, and, and we've all said that uh, we're, we're, not, we're not saying that Duke needs to be a w- team that wins nine, 10 games every season. Occasionally, you know, nine wins every now and then would be great. But um, uh, that we're perfectly content with the Duke program winning six or seven, you know, making a bowl game. Um, And occasionally we'll rise up a little bit higher than that. Um, But the reality is that also means that occasionally you're going to have a season that are a little bit lower than that. And it's it's pretty clear that this is going to be one of those lower seasons um, where we're not going to make a bowl game. But um, there's not just not much more you can say about the season and about what's happened lately than uh, this team is not performing up to what we've seen in recent years from David Cutcliffe teams. And I think Jason, the last thing you harped on is something that uh, we've talked about on this podcast in previous seasons that you just can't take going to a bowl for granted there that, you know, every bowl that we get into should be celebrated. You know, people should make an effort to go to the games. I, I know I've gone to most of the bowl games that we have been in over the last decade and because we have seasons like this and, and this is going to happen where we're going to have seasons like this, that you're not going to get into a bowl game. It's just going to be, you know, a struggle every week, almost a chore to watch. Uh, but I think hopefully these guys will play for some pride uh, next weekend uh, against uh, Miami, my other alma mater. Um, that'll be our final game of the season. And then really, because honestly, if they beat, the, if they beat the hurricanes and, you know, some things fall into place, maybe they still do go to a bowl game. They may back into one, but they want that extra practice. They want that extra game. But to do that, they're going to have to show some pride and show all these bowl committees that are at the lower pecking lower, you know, pecking order of all these bowl games that, hey, yes, we've had a slump. Yes, it's been a terrible season for Duke football, but we are not going to quit. So if you guys put us in your bowl game, we won't quit. And I, I don't think they're going to get into a bowl game. I think these things will pan out. But I also think that you don't leave it to – the record. I think you leave it to uh, the heart, the intensity, the, the passion and say, hey, if we're going out, we're going to go out fighting. And this is a good way to do it. They had a little bit of fight, I think, this week. Last week, we didn't see that. So I am, am I am pleased to see that we saw we had some fight, even though we just weren't that good. Uh, Sam, what do you think? Yeah, no, I, I agree that I liked the fight that Duke showed after two consecutive weeks of 
of pretty poor performances. They, you know, Wake is not Notre Dame, but Wake is better than Syracuse. And Duke was able to, you know, to to get back into contention with Wake Forest late in the game before they had a couple scores to to run away from the Blue Devils at the end. Um, so I do appreciate that Duke was able to to stay in the fight, as they say, and uh, perhaps they'll they'll bring it again to Miami next week for the final game of the season. Nice NAS reference. Yeah, you like that? I did. Okay, guys, uh, we have actually, we for those of you out there, we apologize because we have neglected this next segment for the first couple of weeks, and that is completely our bad. But Player of the Week is back. Uh, we're not going to go back and do the first two weeks. I think we all kind of know who those players were, but we are also going to do this week. Sam, I start with you. Who is your Player of the Week? Uh, we had two games that we're considering here against Cal and against Georgetown. I think I know what your answer is, but why don't you tell the people? Look, the good people of the 2K Empire Classic Committee or whatever told us that Vernon Carey was the player of the tournament. So who am I to go against all of their knowledge and expertise and wisdom? It's got to be Vernon Carey. Uh, A huge week from him on both offense and defense. We talked about how he was able to create offense in a lot of, of different ways, and it feels like he's finally coming into his own. So definitely Vernon Carey for me. JC, you making it two for two? <laughs> yeah, you think? Um, in his past four games, Vernon Carey has had a double-double in each one of those games. He's averaging 22 points, 11 and a half rebounds, almost two points per game over those past four games. He's yet to miss a three-pointer on the season. Um, and like Sam said, he was quite clearly the best player at the uh, uh, Empire Classic Tournament, whatever the heck it's called. Clearly, Vernon player of the week i'm gonna go ahead and make it three for three vernon carey was uh awesome uh in new york city remember i I believe uh sam when you went to media day and you spoke with vernon carey he mentioned that madison square garden was the was the place that he was most looking forward to playing the garden and he's he's been there three times we actually it's funny we have won they said they we've won more games there than the knicks have um which I think that that says a lot, and, and Vernon Carey was a big part of we, that, especially this week. We, that was that's we the miss best you. stat. That is the best stat. <laughs> we miss you, R.J. Barrett. Yeah, <laughs> thanks, thanks for everything. But uh... <laughs> poor guy, poor guy could have been winning, winning more in New York than he is now. You know? it's, a, it's a shame. But he's getting Ow. paid. He's getting I want to know how many, how many games the Knicks have. How many games the Knicks have won at home without R.J. Barrett, though? I think the answer might be zero. Yeah. All right, guys, now it is time for parting shots. And Jason, I will go to you first. So I got two parting shots I want to talk to folks about. The first one is a hearty congratulations from the Duke Basketball Report team to Shane Battier, who was inducted um, today, Sunday, into the National Collegiate Basketball Hall of Fame. Um, I, I guess not really a surprise. Shane had one of the great careers in college basketball history, including winning a national title, including being three-time defensive player of the year. No one has ever been four-time defensive player of the year. Shane did it three times, so uh, pretty pretty amazing. He was national player of the year, outstanding player of the final four. I mean, dude was amazing. Um, but 
the one little thing I want to point out, which I think was kind of interesting, um, uh, they, they, they mentioned in the story about Shane Battier, and I did not know this, um, in the story about Shane Battier being inducted into the Hall of Fame, they mentioned that in 1998, he was cut from the uh, Goodwill Games team, the Team USA for the Goodwill Games. He was cut by, by Rick Majerus. And um, Shane said that it was the first time in his life he'd been cut from the team, and it completely changed his work ethic, that he began working his tail off, and that he had one goal of um, after that, of making sure that his coach would never want him on um, on the bench ever again, um, and uh, I, you know, I just thought that was a nice little story um, about Shane Battier and Rick Majerus, who also Rick Majerus was inducted into the College Basketball Hall of Fame um, uh, this weekend, and uh, you know, Rick is unfortunately no longer with us. He died in 2012. Um, uh, but I, I like the connect between the two of those and uh, and and Shane talking about the fact that um, when he missed out on that team, that's what inspired him to become better. That kind of resilience is what it takes to be truly, truly great and truly special. Shane Battier, clearly, truly great and truly special. So I think of all the accolades that Shane had in college, he, and he had a lot of them, I think the biggest one is this. He is the college player with the most wins ever. And I think that says a lot about the heart that he displayed, the, the talent that he had, and just the fact that he did it for so you know for four years. It's a it's a record that probably won't ever be touched ever again. Um, I believe it's 136 wins in college basketball. That is an astounding number, but it also kind of shows the leader that he became under Coach K at Duke University, but also one that, as you guys know, I experienced with him personally as a friend and. Uh, fellow you know fellow uh college and high school uh colleague so uh congrats to Detroit country day shout out always uh they're going to the state finals by the way in football bob um we're gonna <laughs> i know i know jason you have a, another uh parting shot we're gonna go to sam first and then we'll go back to you so i wanted to talk very quickly about james harden we are about 20 percent of the way through the nba season and james harden is averaging 38 points per game. That's 38 points per game. Nobody does that. He's shooting 43% overall and only 35% from three. So I ask the two of you, and, and, and he's obviously, the whether you like him or not, he's one of the most fascinating electric players I think that we've ever seen. So my simple question is, do you like James Harden, Donald Wine? I like James Harden. I, I think it's it's funny. When he came into the league, I did not think he would become the scoring machine that he is right now. Uh, it's funny. Me and my friends used to joke about the fact that he wasn't a scoring machine and that he was a guy that would shoot the ball a lot but not actually score. The fact that he's turned into such a machine is one of the you know greatest things that this game of basketball has ever seen. And it's kind of remarkable that he's still doing what he did last year with Russell Westbrook on his team, who right. also was doing these things for Oklahoma City last year. That so in itself is amazing. That's the crazy part that I wanted that I wanted to highlight next is not only is it like it seems like James Harden is becoming more and more of a volume shooter, and they added triple double machine West, Russell Westbrook to the team this year. So. Mm-hmm. Westbrook obviously can can dish it out and Harden benefits from that, but there are only so many shots in a game that anyone's going to get. And, 
you know, pairing them back up together again after all these years, I thought, you know, maybe they'll find maybe they'll find a bit more rhythm and harmony. Nope. James Harden's just gonna score more and more and more. Jason, do you have any crazy? Do you, what do you think about James Harden, generally speaking? Yeah, so the Rockets have the sixth best record in the Western Conference. That's what I think about James Harden. Uh, Damn. What? Wait, wake, <laughs> hey, hang on. Seriously, wake me up when they win a title with, with this singular talent. Um, James Harden plays a brand of basketball that is not aesthetically pleasing. Um, I get that he's very successful at it, um, but I don't enjoy watching it particularly, and I don't think he necessarily makes the players around him better. And I, I think that his team could probably be better if he played a little bit differently. Um, uh, the, the, the Rockets are the sixth best team in, in the West. That's my response to what I think about James Harden averaging 38 points per game. I guess the, the other guys, is- the other guys who, other guys who average like 30 plus 35, 33 plus points per game, like Michael Jordan, he did it like Wilt Chamberlain when he did it, those kind of guys. We're on teams that were playing in the finals every year. Hey, James Harden, you've made exactly zero finals, I think, right? Did he make it once? I know, I, he may have made it one year when he was sixth man for Oklahoma City when Russell Westbrook and Kevin Durant were the best players in that team. He was James Harden-led team. teams? Mm-hmm. James Harden-led teams have made zero NBA finals. And That's what I think probably about James Harden. Up, they probably broke up that Thunder team right after that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. He, and, they traded him to, to Houston. He's it. a great yeah. player. He's a great player. He's a great individual player, but I don't enjoy watching him play particularly, you know, all that much. I'd I'd rather watch I'd I'd rather watch my own Trey Young. I'd rather watch Luka Doncic. There are a lot of other guys I'd rather watch play other than James Harden. And you'd rather, you'd rather watch resurgent LeBron James. Uh, yes, there I, I can probably name a good ten players at least that I would rather watch play than James Harden. Um, and. Uh, you know, like I say, wake me, wake me when Houston's playing in the finals. Until then, and, I'm just not and, interested. And I didn't tee you guys up with that parting shot, so I feel vindicated that it was a worthwhile topic because <laughs> Donald had one take on it, Jason had the totally other take on it, and that I think is the story of James Harden. I rest my case. Uh, Sam, what what's your take? My take? Oh, I I just think that he he's sort of a fascinating case study. In on the one hand, the team is supposed to be like very analytics driven and by the numbers they're they're getting all the scouting reports and everything and then on the other hand their star player doesn't seem to care at all about any of that stuff and they can't really figure out how to rein him in and at the same time they all seem to love him so and it also here's the other from thing an they, ana- they, I was say, from an analytics standpoint the fact that he's bad has the refs in his back pocket and he's able to draw fouls and hit foul shots at a 90 percent clip I mean, he shoots more free throws than anybody in the game. Um, but it's, from an it's analytics not like standpoint, his, that's a good thing. So it, his, he works his, for analytics. He just doesn't work from aesthetics. I th- I I think his his sort of advanced stats could be better if they could figure out how to move the ball around a little more on that team. But they don't they don't pay me what they pay Daryl Morey to figure this stuff out. Right. So and I think at the that. end of the day, at the end of the day. This offensive output is why Houston's being talked about. Last year, they, I mean, yeah, you're right. They didn't get to the finals, but they got within one game. Uh, and then for some reason, they decided that they needed Russell Westbrook instead of Chris Paul. And that was the analytics part of things, which I, you know, that blows my mind too. But at the end of the day, it's almost like last year, he barely lost the MVP race to 
uh, Giannis Antetokounmpo because they're like, if you take Harden off of this team, what are the Rockets? We're not, they're not being talked about. That's for sure. It, the real question is, if you take Harden off of this team, are they the same basketball team? Are they a better basketball team? Or are they a worse basketball team? I think most people would argue that without James Harden, the Houston Rockets are a lottery team. They're a lottery pick. But at the end of the day, I don't think we'll ever know because like you said, I think like you both said, they're being built on analytics, but you have one guy who's just saying bump all that and scoring 38 points a game. Can, can I just ask a quick question? Is there any top 10 player in the league that if you took that player off the team, yeah, I think that's be a... a lot, lot, lot worse. I mean, yeah. Well, I mean, Houston it... minus James Harden. How about Milwaukee minus Giannis? How, how, how about Dallas minus Luca? Uh, I would say, I would argue that minus... I would, I'm sorry. I would argue that uh, there's one team that we've seen where you need uh, one player is okay, but two or three is not. And that's the golden state warriors. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, Speaking of the NBA, I'm going to do my parting shot because I think it's a good segue. And then, Jason, you're going to you're going to wrap it up with your second one. Um, the NBA is talking about really revamping the entire league calendar over the next couple of years. Um, the one thing that this is something that came out, I believe it was this morning uh, or, or late yesterday. Uh, but really, there's a couple of things that I think are going to be interesting. These mind, mind you, these proposals would take place and, and be in effect in the 2021-2022 season, which would be the NBA 75th anniversary. So they're talking about doing this in the lead-up to that uh, anniversary season. The one thing is about uh, that's really going to be interesting is that they want to do a 30-team in-season tournament in, the, in some time in the middle of the season. And with that, they're also going to do a postseason plan that involves the 6th, 7th, 8th, and 9th, I want to say, I'm sorry, 7th, 8th, 9th, and 10th seed teams uh, in each conference. What is that going to mean? That means that actually there's going to be a shorter regular season game that will be a minimum of 78 games, but some teams may play up to 83 games. Also, I think one thing that's really going to kind of be a source of contention is that the uh, finals, the four conference finalists are going to be reseeded. So it could be where the top two teams, the teams that make the finals, could come from the same conference. And I, I first of all, I think it's, it's, it's kudos to the NBA to kind of see what they can do to kind of move the NBA into the next 25, the next 75 years. Uh, I think this is something that they've looked at soccer in doing this, the in-season tournament especially, and also the kind of play-in to the postseason. But uh, I'm not sure how this is going to be taken by the fans. I think in the end, the players may make the same or if not more money, but the, the conference, or not the conference tournament, the 30-team in-season tournament is going to be the thing that's going to be interesting for people like me who love that in, in soccer and, and want to see how it translates into basketball. But I think for the basketball purists, it may be something that's not going to take very well initially. Um, but just like everything else, I feel like over the coming years, once this is implemented, if this is implemented, they still have to formally approve it. It's going to be something that is, you know, 25 years from now, we're going to be like, I don't even remember when there wasn't a 30 team in season. Like how boring, how boring must the regular season have been if we were just, everyone was playing 82 games. Well, exactly. So uh, it's going to be interesting how that takes, takes yeah. effect. What do you guys think of this, by the way? I like it. I, I think that Bill Simmons came up with something like this, that he called the entertaining as hell tournament. This was, I think it was in his book of basketball 10 or so years ago. 
And it's always sounded like fun to me. I think putting teams in in more pressure playoff type situations is going to result in a better product than the product that we currently get, which not that it's bad. I think the NBA has gotten a lot more watchable the last 10, 15 years, but that because there's all this load management and players having to take games off, things like that, the the product is enhanced by them forcing teams to be more competitive at, at different points in the season, even if they are not the Warriors, the you know, the the Lakers, whoever whoever sort of the top contenders are in a given season. I I love the in in season tournament. I think that is a way to um, you know spark interest in the sort of doldrums of uh, November, December, January basketball, and 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 expanding the playoff pool, so to speak, down to the top ten teams is going to put more teams in contention. It's going to mean you know if you're within a couple games of the ten spot with four or five games to go, you're going to still be playing hard because if you can get to that number 10, you could play a game against the number nine and win it and then play a game against one other team and suddenly you're in the playoffs. Um, and and that's going to mean fewer teams at the end of the year playing meaningless games. Fewer meaningless games is good for basketball. Yeah, totally agree. Uh, okay, Jason, now it's time for your second party chat. Give us what you got. Uh, I am here to criticize the ACC. Um, what? It, no. yes. Let's go. Let's go. Yes. I'm here for it. Let's Shocking. Go. You? There are there are 353 teams in Division One college basketball. 353 of them. And Virginia the is the slowest one. No, it's, it's not <laughs> slow. Is fine. It's schedule that I've got a problem with. The team that has played the worst schedule in all of Division One basketball, team number 353, is Virginia Tech. Team number 352 is Clemson. Team number 351 is Louisville. That's right. The three worst schedules in all of college basketball thus far belong to the ACC. Oh, and it doesn't stop there. Notre Dame is 347th. NC State is 340th. And UNC, the vaunted Carolina, is 333rd. That means there are six ACC teams that have among the bottom 20, the 20 worst schedules in all of college basketball thus far. That's disgusting. Do you want to know which ACC team has played the toughest non-conference schedule so far? It's the Duke Blue Devils. We're number 137. Now, look, 137 is not great. I, I, I wish it was better than that. Um, but I'll take it, especially because the rest of our conference is apparently full of cowards who are unwilling to schedule any difficult opponents. Um, the next best teams after Duke are Miami, Georgia Tech, BC, and Wake. Those teams, almost to a, a every single one of those teams, are expected to be toward the bottom half of the ACC this year. The top teams in the ACC, the best teams in the ACC, the Louisville's, the UNC's, Virginia as well, are playing terrible non-conference schedules shame on every single one of them i want to see the the acc is the best conference in the land all three of us would agree about that i want to see the acc putting that you know the skill of our conference up against other good teams at least occasionally guys i know you got to play some cupcakes but goodness gracious the three worst schedules in all college basketball belong to virginia tech clemson and louisville i hate it and i can't wait for the ACC Big Ten Challenge. So at least we'll be playing Power 5 opponents um, as opposed to playing the cupcakes that most of the ACC's been playing so far. 
evidence Jason, out. Jason, if you told me you gave me three guesses as to who would have the worst schedule in college basketball, I would not need one to say it was Virginia Tech. The, yeah. This is something that hey, have, they have literally missed the tournament several times uh, in previous years because of their schedule, and Serves it does not seem right. they've learned from that. So serves them, them right. Mm-hmm. I've always. I've always thought that it was NC State that was so bad at this. So last year so. they were. Last year they had the worst. I, I we did a I did a parting shot last year about the fact that NC State had the worst schedule. I was well, shocked. Hey, I went good for them. Game. Good for them for not being in the bottom three this year. Just yeah, they're only in the bottom fifteen. Exactly. Hey, hey improvement. However slow it is, is still improvement. And I think that's going to do it for this episode, <laughs> episode 174 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. Um, listen, those of you out there, uh, this coming up uh, this week is Thanksgiving. Uh, we hope all of you have safe travels to your uh, destinations, wherever you'll be uh, remaining for the holiday. And from all of us here, we wish you a happy Thanksgiving. It is the best holiday of the year, in my opinion, because it's also my birthday week. So kudos to that. For all of you out there. Happy birthday, uh, Donald. Everybody wish Donald a thank happy you. birthday. Um, happy they, birthday, I'm playing Donald. on my birthday. 174 but Duke, podcasts. By the way, guys. That's that a number, lot of podcasts. That number's crazy. That is Not a bad. crazy number. We, we kind of joke with each other, guys, about how we always mess up the number. Um, that's because we have so many. We don't know how many we've done. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a good thing, in my opinion. But until next week, for Sam in Durham and for Jason in Atlanta, uh, this is the Duke Basketball Report podcast. Duke Band. Take us home.